Amen. Thank you, Tony. Our scripture passage this morning is Psalm 107, and so if you have a Bible, if you'd like to turn there, uh, you can follow along. That'd be great, uh, but if you didn't bring one with you, there are Bibles in the pew in front of you, or it will be, it's printed for you in your worship folder. If you look through it there, you can find it. It's also on the screen behind me as I read, and if you're at home, it should be on your screen as well. So there's no reason, there's no excuse for you to not get your eyes on the text as we read it together. Now, this is a longer reading than usual, and I didn't think about the fact that the kids are in here this week, uh, but nevertheless, it's going to be a little bit of a lengthy journey, but you really can't understand the psalm unless we read the whole thing. Uh, You really have to to see the structure of it to understand exactly what uh, is happening here. So Psalm 107, let's read together. It's 43 verses, again, but it's worthy of, of us reading all the way through. Beginning in verse 1. We'll give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way, no way to a city to dwell in. Hunger, hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them, and they cried to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them... Thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And then some, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and irons, for they had rebelled against the words of the Lord and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor and they fell down with none to help. But then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress he brought them out of darkness and into the shadow and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Now this is going to become familiar. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. And then some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death and they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. And then there were some who went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. And they saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea and they mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. And their courage melted away in their evil plight. And they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. And then he goes on to say, for he, God, turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression and evil and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in the trickle, trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of the affliction 
It makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. I love that. And so verse 43 focuses us, whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. This is God's word. Would you say with me, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. We are in the middle of a series through the Psalms, trying to learn how to resolve the troubles and emotional tensions of life through prayer and theological reflection, because that is what the Psalms model for us. Things like shame and fear, anxiety, these, these realities, they have voices. They talk to you. I know that sounds weird, uh, but it's what the Psalms say, it's what, and it's what we know to be true. They talk to you, and if you listen, you get dragged down into despair and unbelief. And so what we're saying is that instead of listening, we need to learn how to talk back. To talk back, to stop listening to our hearts and start talking to our hearts. Derek Kidner refers to the Psalms as models of self-communion which I find to be a helpful analogy. He means a way to be present to the state of your own heart so that you can go on the offensive, so that you can stop listening to all of the bad thinking that comes from your epi desires and emotions and start talking to your heart instead. Doing what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, taking yourself in hand, handling yourself, reminding yourself of the truth, doing theology until... The doing of theology starts to change the way you feel and the way you perceive the world around you. So basically, we're working on our doctrine of God. Who is God? I mean, what is God like? These are the questions that we're trying to answer. And A.W. Tozer said that what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And so week after week, we're using the Psalms to shape our view of God. And Psalm 107 is a meditation on his works, his wondrous works. You see that mentioned over and over again. Think of Psalm 107 like a hymn with four verses and then a chorus that repeats itself four times. And the chorus says this. It's in verse 8 and then again in verse 15 and 21 and 31. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of God. Of man, The theme of this psalm is God's works, his wondrous works, his saving power, his miraculous interventions in the history of his people, specifically in the Exodus, but in the way he continues to intervene miraculously in the lives of those he loves, rescuing and redeeming his people from all of the things coming against them. See, as you read the Bible, <clears throat> uh, there's a question that keeps surfacing in the lives of people in crisis. And it happens over and over again with Sarah and Job and Jeremiah and Elizabeth and Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. And it's this question that keeps popping up. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And I'd ask you, what's your, what's your answer? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Or what is the one area of your life where you are most tempted to be struggling through the answer to that question? If you think hard enough for just a minute, you probably will come to some place where it's really an issue of of a crisis of faith for you to be able to really come to a firm answer. But the irony is is that when 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 it pops up in the scriptures, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's really a rhetorical question. It's It's a question with an answer. It's a question that's meant to expose our unbelief. It should not be a question. It should be a conviction. 
With God, all things are possible. That's the other thing that's said over and over again in the Bible. With God, all things are possible, but often it remains posed as a question. It sits upon our hearts as a question, as a matter of doubt, whether through ignorance or willful unbelief. And our lives are severely impoverished as a result. And so Psalm 107 shows us how to take that issue and turn the question into a conviction by doing two things. By first warning us about the sin of forgetting, and then secondly, by modeling for us the habit of thanksgiving. And so the way, the way it goes from a question, is anything too hard from the Lord, to the conviction, all things are possible with God, is through the habit or through the practice of giving thanks. And that really is what Psalm 107 helps us with here. It warns us about the sin of forgetting, and then it models for us the habit of thanksgiving. And so let's walk through the text as best we can along those two headings. So first, okay? So first, the first thing here is that Psalm 107 warns us about the sin of forgetting. Now, this is not as explicit in the text. It is implied. But look at how the psalm begins. Look there at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, he says, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And you would say what? Amen, right? In fact, what's the next verse say? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And so let's practice. Can we practice that for a minute? I know it's Presbyterian church, but we can do it, okay? So, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And the redeemed say? Amen. Amen. That's right. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. God is the fountain of all the good in your life. He loves you with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. But you have to say so. Like that's supposed to bring something out of you. You can't, it's not enough to just to merely know it or feel it. You have to say it. Because without the, without the discipline of saying so, you, risk, you run the risk of forgetting. Now, the psalm is chiastic. It ends where it begins. So if you look at the very last verse, verse 43, here's what it says. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So this is the purpose of the psalm. This is the theme, to help us be attentive to God's faithfulness throughout all of the days of our lives in both our collective and our individual stories to shape us or to shape in us a life of considering, of remembering his steadfast love. Otherwise, we run the risk of forgetting. Remember is a synonym for faith in the scriptures. To remember is to believe. Forgetting is a synonym for unbelief. The sin underneath every sin is unbelief, and it's rooted in our forgetting. In Eden, the man and the woman first believed wrongly about God before they behaved badly. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, to use the Apostle Paul's language from Romans chapter 1, and that is the root of every sin. Now, I wish this was more explicit in the text, but again, it is not. We have to draw some connections here, but it is very explicit in Psalm 78, which we read earlier. It's why I chose that as a uh, call, as a, um, a law passage. There, and if you look back in your worship folder, you can see there it describes the failure of one generation to say so to the next. And this is how the faith is passed down through generations. One generation has to say so about God's steadfast love and his wondrous works to the next so that their children and their grandchildren might set their hope on God. That's what you read there. And not forget his works, but keep his commandments. That's verses 5 and 6. But this particular generation in Israel's history, however, 
They did not do this. They are described there in verse 7 as a stubborn and rebellious people. Their heart was not steadfast. Their spirit was not faithful to the Lord. They refused to listen. They were intent on going their own way. They were wishy-washy in their commitment to spiritual things. And so they were easily turned aside from obeying the Lord. But underneath all of those behavioral problems was a bigger problem. And here's what it says. This is verse 21. It says, they did not believe in God, and they did not trust his saving power. See, unbelief. That was the root. The weeds were all of the other things, their refusal to listen, their hard-heartedness, their unfaithfulness. But the, the root was their unbelief. They were stubborn and rebellious and apathetic because they did not trust God to save them. They exchanged the truth of God and about God's power and his steadfast love for a lie that left them suspicious and doubting, and it sapped them of their spiritual life. Now, Psalm 78 goes on to tell us how this happened. In verse 10, it says, They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. They did not keep the memory of God's wonders alive in their own hearts by saying so. And here's the thing. It's... It's terrifying, really. It happened in one generation. It happened within one generation. This is the generation that saw the plagues in Egypt. They lived through the Passover. They're the ones that walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. They drank from the water, from the rock in the wilderness. They were God's redeemed people. But at some point, that redeemed people stopped saying so, and the result was it was all forgotten. And this is the way sin works in our hearts, too. Our hearts. The sin underneath the sins of greed and envy, of being a control freak, and discouragement, and anxiety, and whatever things we might list, the root of every sin is gospel forgetfulness. And let me make an application to the wider culture here, too, because I think it is uh, important and helpful. You may be here uh, this morning, and you may not be sure what you believe, and I want you to consider one implication of material secularism. 500 years ago, belief in God was the default. Atheism, atheism in the 16th century was akin to saying that unicorns were real. Now think of how far we've come. Today, we take for granted that God is not real. We live in a purely materialistic world, a disenchanted world. Now, that is something of a technical term in philosophy, but I think it's a good word to describe the fallout of the loss of God in our world, a disenchanted world. Do you remember the, uh, the Disney movie Enchanted? The kids probably do, or the teenagers probably do. Somebody does. Yeah, I see some thumbs up. There you go. Yeah. This, this Enchanted. It was, uh, it was this idea that the fairy tales are actually true, that the kingdom of Andalasia was a real place, that our world and that world of magic and happily ever afters were somehow connected. And so, you know, if you get thrown down the right well there, you end up in Times Square here. And this is the way that we used to conceive of the world, that the spiritual and the physical world were overlapped. So for one example, no one questioned miracles in before times. If a miracle happened, they assumed, oh yeah, this makes sense. This divine intervention, the gods, you know, the gods are coming down and doing something, or God is coming into the world and, and doing something, because the line separating the material world from the physical world was porous. But now, as secularism has taken hold, we no longer believe in anything beyond the material world. We live in a disenchanted world, 
where there's no God and therefore no mystery and no wonder. We don't see royalty as the divine presence in the world. We see them as tabloid material. Luther, I told Austin this before he did the baptism. This is his first baptism, by the way, this morning. Uh, and he killed it. It was awesome. But uh, Luther um, described serving his first communion as a priest with such fear and trembling that he fumbled and almost dropped the cup because he was shaking. And he was so rattled by it that he couldn't even finish the service. Now, you don't see that kind of awe in people as they approach the communion table these days. The world has been completely decharged of transcendence. And if you're a person of faith, don't be so naive to think that you're not being shaped by this imminent frame. You are powerfully. All the more reason to develop strategies of saying so about God's steadfast love and his wondrous works so that you do not forget. And here is the truth. Here is the truth. This world is indeed an enchanted place. There is deep magic and there is deeper magic at work in the world. God is personally and actively involved in human history and also in every individual person's story. Jesus said in John chapter 5, my father is working until now and I am working. God is a workaholic. Now he knows how to take breaks. But here's what that verse means. These wondrous works of God that we read about in the history of the people of faith that are recorded in the scriptures, these wondrous works of God have not ceased. He is just as active in our world today as he was then. He is doing just as wonderful and marvelous and powerful and awesome things in the life of every single person who belongs to him today as he did then. The question is, do we have eyes to see? And that leads us to the second thing, that given, given that truth, then the psalm also, it, it, it warns us of the sin of forgetting, but it also models for us the habit of thanksgiving, the discipline of saying so. More than ever, we need strategies that help us break through the malaise of the imminent frame, and Psalm 107 helps tremendously. It's why, of all the psalms, I picked this one, because it is a call to give thanks. So there, verse 1 again, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For steadfast love endures forever. And then the chorus four times in verse 8, 15, 21, and, 20, and 31. It's repeated over and over. Let them give thanks. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. And so it is a call to give thanks as a way of doing life, not forgetting the wonderful things that God has done and is doing. In, in 1863... In the middle of the Civil War, President Lincoln issued a proclamation calling for the celebration of what has, has become today Thanksgiving. And his proclamation began with these words. This is, this is so interesting. He says, remember, this is the middle, middle of the darkest time in our nation's history. He said this, the year that is drawing towards its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthy skies. Now that's quite a perspective, given what was going on in the country at the time. But then he goes on, he says, to these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed that we are prone to forget the source from which they come, others have been added, which are of so extraordinary a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften the heart, which is habitually insensible to the ever watchful providence of God. Now, you should look that up because that's a really good bit of good theology. God's blessings, President Lincoln said, are so constant the problem is they're so constant, we take them for granted. 
They're so abundant that we forget him even in the enjoyment of all of his gifts. And we need to be awakened, made sensible of God's wondrous works so that the goodness and the steadfast love that he so constantly and consistently shows might penetrate and soften our hearts. That's the problem we're trying to solve too. And Lincoln's solution was a ritualized, nationwide, communal saying so. Let's take a day and say so. So listen, when your mom gouges you around the table and says, okay, now everybody's going to say the thing they're grateful for, don't make fun of her for that. She's a wise woman. Because that's what the day is about. It's not about pumpkin pie. Well, it is about pumpkin pie and all that. But first, it's about people gathering and saying so. Because it's good for our hearts to do that. Soren Kierkegaard said, life must be lived forward, but it must be understood backward. The philosopher Hegel famously said, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. You say, what in the world does that mean? The owl of Minerva, you could impress somebody with your Jeopardy knowledge there. The owl of Minerva flies at dusk. The owl of Minerva was a traditional symbol of wisdom. And so he meant that most things cannot be properly understood until they've been lived. There's a perspective that crystallizes at the end of things. And giving thanks is the habit of reflecting, which is why it's called wise. The wise person does this. It's looking back and naming all the good that you've been given and then naming God as the giver. Because right now, see, you're probably in the middle of some pretty hard stuff. And the problem is, is when you're in the middle of it, you can't see clearly because you're not on the other side yet. And the way you find the strength to go through it is to look back on all the hard stuff from before and find all the good that was happening back then when you felt then the way you do now, see? Unbelief is revisionist history. It lessens the mercies of God and amplifies the sufferings. Thanksgiving is an act meant to reverse that flow. It's an act of discernment. It intentionally lessens the bad by amplifying the good. Because it identifies in retrospect the wondrous works of God. If God was working then, even though I couldn't see it then, but now I have the perspective to see it. If he was working then, then guess what? He's working now, even though I can't see it now. I can't, but someday, someday, I'll be down the road in the future, and I'll look back on this moment, and I'll realize, oh, he was working then also, and then I'll see it. But see, if I know that, then I can start, it starts to open my eyes to actually begin to see even in the present. Psalm 107 models this kind of reflection. First, in all of our personal stories, there are four different damsel in distress scenarios and then a rescue, and then a call to give thanks. Now, everybody has their way of describing these four scenarios. I like Tim Keller's best, uh, and, and given his death recently, maybe it's good to honor him by going with his. So let's really quickly, we need to fly through this as fast as we possibly can. First, the first is described in verses 4 through 9. That's the first section. And, and these are people that we would describe as having no city. So look there in verses 4 and 5. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, their souls fainted within them. These are people who have no place. They have no people. They are lonely and vulnerable and exiled. And then it says in verse 6, God rescued them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached the city to dwell in. And Dr. Keller writes this. He says, at the deepest levels, it means that we need Jesus to heal our spiritual lostness, remove our spiritual hunger, give rest for our spiritual exhaustion, and through the church, end our loneliness. Because you do know the end of the book of Revelation, which is the last part of the scriptures, is a city. 
The culmination of God's salvation is a heavenly city coming down to earth, a place of safety and belonging with God. He is the bread that if you eat of it, you will never hunger again. And he is the water that if you drink from it, you will never thirst again. And he offers himself to you as bread and water in Jesus Christ. This is God's wondrous work, right? There you go. You already got it. He satisfies the longing soul. But then it says, let them thank the Lord. You see how it leads us to that? I mean, let them say so. And you've already done that. And so we would, you know, what does that look like? Oh, God, I was looking for things that did not satisfy, and you did not give them to me. And I was angry with you when you didn't. But now I realize that you gave me yourself instead. What a better trade. Thank you. See? And then the second is described in verses 10 through 16, and these are people we might describe as sitting in chains. Look there, verse 10. Some sat in darkness, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God. And these are people who've tried to do life on their own without God. They were looking for freedom and found a prison because being able to do whatever you want is not freedom. It's a prison. True freedom is not no limits. It's living with the right limits. And there, there here is a description of a soul weighed down by shame and a sense of condemnation that is so profound that they are stuck. They can't get over it, it says. And it's like being chained to a wall. And they cried out to God, verse 14, and he brought them out of darkness and he burst their bonds open. In other words, he set them free from the weight of their sins. I mean, this is, there's incredible freedom in knowing and relying on God's love, knowing that you don't have to work for your place in his family, that you're loved and you're accepted no matter what because of the grace of Jesus. This is God's wondrous work, see? He, look there, verse 16, shatters doors and cuts into iron bars. He sets prisoners free. Let them thank the Lord, it says, right? Let them say so. And the way you would talk to your heart like this, you say, oh God, I was bound up by my sense of condemnation and shame because of my sins, and you have forgiven me, and you've loved me. You sent Jesus to die for me. Thank you. And then there's a third group that's described beginning in verse 17 through verse 22. And this is, these are people that we could describe as self-damaged. Some were fools, it says, verse 17, through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. Now, fool describes a person who has become self-destructively, self-absorbed, and self-deceived. This is the know-it-all. This is the person who they mess things up and then they double down on their own ideas. The fool is out of touch with reality. They're constantly going against the grain of the universe and getting splinters, but then instead of wising up, they just keep blaming everybody else. But it says they cried out to God, verse 19 and 20, and he sent out his word and healed and delivered them from their destruction. He changed them. And so if you believe in Jesus, you are forgiven of your sins, but here's another part of the good news. He's also healing you. He's making you new. He will give you a new heart with new motivations and new desires to set you on a completely different trajectory in the life of every single person. This is God's wondrous work. God loves you. And his love is so powerful and pure that it can change you. It can make you completely different than you were before. Let them thank the Lord, right? Let them say so. And this is the way you would talk to your heart. Oh, God, your love is better than life. And so I will praise you. And then there's a fourth. It's described in verses 23 through 32. 
And this we might describe as a person that is storm-battered. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. These are the sufferers, threatened by forces beyond them. And in the Bible, sea travel is a metaphor for life. There are days when the sky is clear and the water is calm, and then out of nowhere a storm comes up and there is nothing you could do but ride it out. Suffering is a painful reality check, shattering the illusion that life can be tamed through productivity hacks and life management skills. But it says that he came to these people and made the storm to be still, verse 29, and the waves were hushed, and they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. This is God's wondrous work, and the way that he rescues his people. Let them thank the Lord, right? Let them say so, and you would talk to your heart this way with that, oh God, thank you that you were with me in the storm. You never left me. I was always safe, and you brought me through it, and you will bring me through all the storms I face. I can trust you all the way until you bring me home. Now, there's another way of looking at this just before we finish, and that is to see that these four different descriptions are really one description of the same work of God. They are different ways of describing what all the redeemed have in common. The phrase wondrous work is actually a single word. It is used to throughout the scriptures in a very specific way to, to describe God's powerful displays in the Exodus. The nation of Israel, the descendants of a man named Abraham, had become slaves in Egypt. And for 400 years, they languished there as slaves. And then God rescued them. He redeemed them. And there were plagues and miracles and all of those things. And the word used here four times is a sort of technical term to describe the whole of that event of God's miraculous intervention on behalf of his people. And it was a wonder. That's the word. It was a wonder. And here it is applied to our individual stories and that's really, really neat because it means that God, what God is doing in your life, however it's shaping, whatever it looks like, the work that God is doing in your life, no matter what shape it takes, is no less wonderful, no less miraculous or a cause for thanksgiving and praise than what God did for Israel in the Exodus. And therefore, it is worthy of our thanks and our telling and our joy and our songs in our worship so that we do not forget what God has done for his people in the past. It is what continues he continues to do in the present. It is what he will continue to do in the future until he brings us home. The Bible has another word for it. God redeems. Verse 2, he redeems. And what happens here in the psalm as it goes on is beginning in verse 33 as he's given us these four, these four different scenarios. In 33, the tributaries of the individual stories that he tells begin to merge into the mighty river of God's wondrous works. And we see that there are common themes in all that God is doing in all of the varied ways and all of the different lives and all of the people that he's working through things. And it says there, verse 35, he turns the desert into pools of water and a parched land into springs. He lets the hungry dwell there and they establish a city to live in. God has the ability to take really bad things and turn them for good for the sake of his people. And that's what the Bible means by redeem. Now there's a liturgical prayer adopted by the Anglican church in Kenya from the 1980s that says this, we thank you, God, that in you we are kept safe forever and that the broken fragments of our history are gathered up in the redeeming act of your dear son. That's a beautiful phrase. Jamie, Jamie Smith beautifully reflects on that prayer in his new book, which I would highly recommend to you, everything he writes, but I love this book, and he says this about that phrase, that God is, the broken fragments of our history are being gathered up in the redeeming act of Jesus. He says, the creator of the cosmos, this is what it means, the creator of the cosmos is attuned to the specificity and the particularity of the histories we've endured in time. And he's addressed the strange and perplexing ways we carry absence and loss in our heart and bones, the way 
a profound lack can exert so much power in our lives. God knows the, numbers of ha- the number of hairs on my head, but he also sees what I've lived through. He understands what I've lost, what's gone missing, what the locusts have eaten, and redemption does not sweep away the past. Rather, Christ's redemption gathers up the broken fragments and makes something of them. The God who saves is a mosaic artist, he writes, who takes the broken fragments of our history and does a new thing. He creates a work of art in which that history is reframed, reconfigured, taken up, and reworked such that the mosaic could only be what it is with that history. That is awesome. And then he kind of sums it all up with this little pithy sentence where he says, we will arrive in the kingdom of God carrying our stories. And in the end, it'll be eternal celebration and joy. Let the redeemed say so. Right? I mean, do you see? Do you see how that works? But one last thing, and I promise I'm done. One last thing, and it really is the main thing. When we talk about redemption and redeeming, don't miss the Redeemer. In Isaiah 9, it's a famous Christmas text. It says, for us, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. Maybe you remember that verse. And it says in his name, his name shall be called what? Do you remember? Can you say it? His name shall be called Wonderful. Wonderful Counselor and all that. Wonderful. But what a better translation is probably this. He shall be a wonder. It's a noun, not an adjective there. It's the same word used there as is used here in Psalm 107. A wondrous work. A wonder. Jesus Christ, God in flesh. Everything that God has done and is doing to save, find its its fulfillment and its meaning in him. The son of God made nothing, made himself nothing so that we could be made sons. Adopted by the father. The one who deserved the praise of heaven became a curse. Hanging upon the cross for our sins so that we who deserve condemnation and death could be made righteous. The giver of life gave himself to die so that we who only know death might live forever with God. This is our gospel. Everything in this text points to Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is the breaker of chains. He is the healer of bodies and souls. He is the calmer of the seas. He is the wonder that we're meant to see from this text. And in him, all of it comes together. So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? Well, in Luke 1, an angel announced the coming Messiah to a teenager named Mary. She would become the mother of God through a virgin birth. And you can understand her reaction. She asked the angel, um, how? And here was the angel's response. He didn't answer the question. He didn't say how. This is what he said. For nothing will be impossible with God. And I love Mary's response. She says, okay then. I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me as you've said. Amen. Now, where does that sort of wholehearted obedience come from? And the answer is, it comes from wonder. It comes from wonder. When Jesus Christ came down from heaven, he broke through the barrier separating heaven and earth. And in his resurrection from the dead and his going back up into heaven to the right hand of the Father, he shattered it into a million pieces. Heaven is not there and earth is here. In Jesus those two realities are a single unit. They are overlapping reality. Heaven is not there and earth here. Heaven is here. Which means the world is full of wonder. It's like the fairy tales said. And because it's full of wonder, we can also say it is full of reasons to give thanks. 
a thousand reasons every day to give thanks. Albert Einstein said there are only two ways to live your life. One is if nothing is miracle. The other as if everything is. Can I encourage you towards the second of those two options? Your life will be greatly improved. It's what Christianity makes possible. The grace of God in Jesus to us makes everything miraculous. It's like the hymn writer William Gatsby said. He said, let saints lift up their hearts and with a cheerful voice the wonders of their king proclaim and in the Lord rejoice. Amen. Rejoice yourself in him this morning as we prepare to come to this table. Let's pray together, if you would. And maybe if you would just take a minute to quietly reflect. Really, I just need a minute to get this microphone on, but we'll, we'll give you a moment to pray, and then I'll lead us. So pray quietly as you prepare your hearts to come to his table this morning. Father, we acknowledge that it, we can so easily live as if we are dissatisfied with what you're doing in our lives, but the problem is, is we are so unaware of what you're doing in our lives. There are a thousand things happening, so many wonderful things that you're doing, and we are really at our best aware of two or three of them, and so forgive us for the way that we have allowed ourselves to live a wonderless life, where we've been shaped by the culture that says, uh, this world is all there is, there's really no reason uh, to be in awe. It's just simply not true. You are still active and working in a thousand different ways, in a thousand different lives, and we have every reason to give you thanks. And so would you unlock our hearts this morning and put in our hearts a song that we, the redeemed, might truly say so for the sake of your glory and for the sake of our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, receive this word of benediction as he sends us now into the world to be a people, a redeemed people saying so. Uh, you go with the promise of God's presence and his face turned towards you. And so you can go with all the confidence and the joy that comes with that. Receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.